0: So in 2001, a book took the business world by storm. It's called Good to Great, Why Some Companies Make the Leap and Others Don't. And if you haven't, just by a show of hands, how many of you have heard of that book? Okay, so a good bit of you. If you haven't heard of it, I can almost guarantee you that someone in a company you work for, probably up at the top, or have worked for, has heard of this book. It's since sold uh, 3 million copies. And um, it's, it's really a helpful book to consider, not just for leaders, uh, but for what it even means to be a, a person. And here's the premise of Collins' book. He surveyed uh, a number of leaders and their companies and people who worked for these leaders to determine what makes the difference between a great company or a good company or leader and a great company or leader. And he really found two primary things. The first one will not surprise you. The first one is that these leaders were very, very driven, right? They were were focused on the task. They were hard workers. They were passionate. The second one, and this is why I think this book is so popular, the second feature that Collins kept finding again and again and again is that these leaders, unlike some other prominent leaders, these leaders, these great leaders, were humble. As he interviewed these people, he kept Finding these em- employees who worked for these leaders used words to describe them like modest, reserved, gracious, self effacing. They do not believe their own press. It's a bit countercultural, isn't it? It's kind of shocking as we think of leaders in our nation and world today. He goes on to say, Collins says, they never wanted to become larger than life heroes. They never aspired to be put on a pedestal or become unreachable icons. And listen to what he says they were seemingly ordinary people, quietly producing extraordinary results. See, I think that one of the reasons that book is so popular is because it shows us something about humility that it is countercultural and it is attractive. People are drawn to it. And what's so funny about this is this book is 20 years old. But lo and behold, when we turn to the Bible, (laughs) we find that Collins uh, discovered something that God's word has been crystal clear on from the beginning. And what's more than that, Collins is really showing, this is where a book like that falls short for those of us who are Christians. He's really showing that humility works in a pragmatic sense, right? It's good for business. And that is certainly true. And that's a a good thing, but when we look to scriptures, we see that humility, more than just being pragmatic, it actually draws the gaze of God upon the humble individual. Listen to what Isaiah says, or God says in Isaiah 66, 2. He said, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. What is God saying? The one I will set my gaze upon. The one who, in whom I will be pleased is the one who is humble and contrite. And so it's no surprise And as we come to this chapter in Romans 12 that we're slowly going through. We're getting in the weeds with the ants so to speak. We see that as Paul talks about what does it mean to be a transformed church, the first characteristic he draws our attention to. Is humility. Now, just by way of reminder where we are, we're going through this series in in Romans chapter 12. We're in week two. Last week, Pastor Clint uh, walked through the foundation of this whole chapter, verses one and two, that we are, because of the mercies of God, in light of God's mercies, we are to. To offer our lives as a living sacrifice. Our entire lives are to be an act of worship unto God. And we're not to be conformed to the patterns of this world, but instead our minds are supposed to be transformed. That's the sort of thesis statement of Romans chapter 12. And then what the Apostle Paul does in the rest of the chapter is he really talks about two different things. One, what does that transformation look like in the church? Verses 3 through 13. And then, 14 through 21, what does that transformation look like in the world? So we're just looking at one verse this morning. Verse 3. For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. He is beginning this discussion on what it means to be transformed as the community of God's people in the church, to live together in a way that glorifies God. And he says the first and foremost thing is humility. Okay? Now, if you'll notice in that verse, the word... Humility or humble is, is not used. And so we're sort of summarizing what Paul is saying here. And so we need a working definition, right, if we're going to talk about humility this morning. And so when we, when we say humility, we mean it in a, in a strictly Christian biblical sense. That's a, a, a sort of a common grace word that everybody uses. But what do we mean when we say humility? This is a simple definition. Humility is assessing ourselves properly in light of who God is. And that's what Paul wants us to do this morning. It's what he wants the church at, at, at Rome to do. To learn how to properly assess ourselves in light of who God is. He's really answering the question, to sort of paraphrase Jim Collins' language, how can a church live as seemingly ordinary people producing extraordinary results for the good of one another in the glory of Jesus? Right? You can call it good to great God's way. Maybe I'll write a book about that. I think there already is one, right? But that's what Paul is aiming at here. And so he's giving us, we're going to take this one verse and we're going to try and wring everything out of it. He's showing us a pathway to humility. So if humility is rightly assessing ourselves in light of who God is, Paul in this short verse is going to say, here's how you get there. Here's how you do that. He mixes in a phrase about his own experience. And he tells us how to think. And then he tells us how God has gifted us to serve others. So the pathway to humility is a proper understanding of God's grace and of ourselves in a way that leads us to serving others with our God-given gifts. Okay? There's three things in that. Let me just tell you where we're going. If you're taking notes, this is the outline. First thing that we're going to do is we're going to look up to see the source of humility. Grace given. Second, we're going to look in with the mindset of humility. What does it mean to, th- to think of ourselves with sober judgment? And then third, and finally, we're going to look out to serve others with humility according to the measure of faith and spiritual gifts that God has assigned. So that's where we're headed this morning. So, so let's, let's jump in. First, verse 3 calls us to look up to the source of humility. Now, notice before Paul gives a command, he says something. He introduces what he is going to say. He says, for, right, in light of verses 1 and 2, by the grace given to me, okay? Now, our temptation might be to skip over that and go right to the exhortation, but that is a jam-packed statement. He is about to speak authoritatively to the church, He is about to give an exhortation on people as an apostle about how to live. But before, instead of just launching into it, he says, just so you know, I am one of you. And I make this statement by the grace of God that was given to me. Now, what is grace? Pastor Clint mentioned it last week. A definition, a simple two-word definition would be unmerited favor. Paul says, by the unmerited favor from God given to me. And so we need to stop right there and just ask the question, how has grace been given to the Apostle Paul? Well, there's really two ways, and the same is true of this first one, especially for us. The first way, when we talk about the grace of God, we think of salvation, don't we? God has shown us grace in salvation. Paul has already said, he's actually uh, spoken on this at length in in, uh, the earlier parts of Romans. Listen to what he says in Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So anytime we see the word grace in the New Testament, including right here in verse 3, our minds should be drawn back to the salvation given to us in Christ Jesus. It's not something we earned. It's not something we purchased. It was grace, unmerited favor given to us. We have a privilege in the Apostle Paul's life as we come to the Scriptures to see just how this grace played out in his life, don't we? If you were to go back, you don't have to turn there now, and and to Acts chapter 9, you would read of Saul's conversion. What was was Saul doing? He was not just ambivalent. He was not just sort of apathetic. He was an enemy of God persecuting the church of God. He made it his, his aim to see that Christians were done away with, in prison. He was present at the, the violent murder of the first Christian martyr, Stephen, looking on in approval. But one day, as he was on his way to Damascus with orders to gather up Christians to persecute them, Jesus appeared to him in a blinding light and knocked him off of his horse and grace broke into his life. And he was converted. Paul loved to tell this story. We don't not only read about it in Acts chapter 9, but we see it later as he's retelling his testimony to others who are not Christians. He was constantly reminding himself of the grace given to him in a way that cultivated humility. He puts it this way in Galatians 1.15. He says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, he was pleased to reveal his son to me. And you can read in the back of his mind. That's what happened on the road to Damascus. Grace broke in. I realized I was a sinner and I was born again. I was redeemed not by anything I've done. But by the grace of Christ. But there's another way that Paul is talking about grace here, and this is really the primary way. He's talking about the grace of his apostleship. You see, Paul was a chosen apostle appointed by God as a spokesperson for God, he could speak authoritatively the word of God. He says in Romans 15, But on some points I have written to you very boldly, by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. Now, Paul was a stalwart intellectual. He was a well-spoken, well, uh, an incredible author. He was a theologian. He spoke multiple languages. But when it comes to his authority... When it comes to his ministry, what is the one thing that defines him? It's not his achievements. It's the grace of God. Now you can put both of these things together. And what is Paul saying? He's saying, by grace I was saved and by grace I was given the task to which I am to devote my life. In other words, all of my life is all of grace. Paul constantly looked up and meditated on the source of his salvation, of his ministry, of his life. And what did it do? It cultivated humility in him, it destroyed pride. Friends, that's that's what God's grace does to you and I. A right understanding of God's grace destroys pride and cultivates humility. So, what about us? Well, we're not apostles. We're not writing letters to churches in Rome. But can you say with Paul that all of life, you view all of life as a gift of God's grace? He says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 4, this is a wonderful question. What do you have that you did not receive? Hear the Lord ask you that question this morning, friend. What do you have that you did not receive? The temptation for us is to attribute the big things to God, right? Well, God saved me, yes. I'm I'm growing spiritually. That's God's grace. But friend, do you realize you don't just need grace to get to heaven? You and I need grace to get up out of bed in the morning. You realize that? It's not just a salvation thing. It's a life thing. That breath you just took in your lungs is a gift of God's grace. That job that you love, that relationship, right? All of those things that you value and cherish, what do you have that you did not receive? And when we start thinking that way, when we look up and see that God is gracious and he just lavishes on us unmerited favor, what does it start to do? It starts to kill pride. How can we say that we deserved that or we earned that or that is our right. It humbles us. So friend, how many acts of grace do we just assume each day without pausing and recognizing that all of it is a gift from the Lord? So that simple phrase should be our phrase. We should say in whatever we do, by the grace of God given to me, I breathe. By the grace of God given to me, I got up this morning. By the grace of God given to me, I went to work on time on a Monday morning. That might require extra grace, right? By the grace of God given to me, I served my fellow Christians. By the grace of God given to me, I am still following hard after Christ after all these years. We can attribute none of it to ourselves. So Paul is an example for us here, isn't he? He doesn't wield his authority. He's meek. He doesn't wield his intellectual power, he's gentle, or his his boldness, he walks in humility. And friends, likewise, we're to see all of life through the lens of God who is gracious. When we do that, that is the first step on the pathway to humility. Now think about it this way. One of the greatest ways that you can do this is to do what Paul did. He was constantly recounting his testimony. Some of you are at different stages in your Christian life, but if you are a Christian, just just ask, when was the last time I prayerfully recounted what God did in saving me? I realize, and as I was studying this this week, that it it has been months since I sat and thought thought about how God saved me 20 years ago. And just recounting how he worked providentially through a move across country that I never would have planned, that I hated at the time, and I met this person who shared the gospel, and I got into this church, and oh my goodness, God, you are so gracious to me. Recount your testimony to cultivate that humility, but also recount God's work in your daily life. Make it a habit, a liturgy, to constantly look up to the God who is gracious. Do you realize that we do this every single week? What do we do when we come here? Pastor Clint gets up here and he he welcomes you and and part of the, let's just be honest part of that's to let some of you guys get here who are trickling in no shame no guilt right we love you if you're you're late but but he gives you a little glimpse of here's here's who we are as a church and then what do we do we stand for the call to what worship and what are we doing we are not saying anything we are simply reading God's word. We are beginning our worship gathering by looking up and letting God speak and call us to praise. We're looking up. And then we sing a song. This morning we sang about how worthy he is. What are we doing? We're looking up to the God who is worthy. Our gracious God. Right? And friends, that is not just for church. That, is, that habit should be the habit of every single Christian. To start with God, not with self, Make that your liturgy. Constantly look up to the source of grace to cultivate humility. And then what happens next in our liturgy, right? After we sing that song, we then, after looking up, then we turn and look inward as we confess our sins, don't we? And that's what happens here in this verse. So Paul mentions his own Grace given to him by example for us, look up to the source of humility. Then second, we look in with the mindset of humility. John Calvin talks about this. He says, it's evident that man never attains true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplations to look into himself. You hear what he's saying? If you really want to know God and you really want to know self, you got to look to God first and then you look inward in light of who God is. And so Paul then goes on to say, as he highlights God's grace, he says, I say to everyone among you. Now that's just helpful for us to know that none of us miss this. He's not just saying I talk to the pastors, right, or, or I talk to this certain group of people. I'm talking to every single person Christian it's like when Jesus would say truly truly I say to you or very verily verily I say to you it's his shorthand way of saying guys listen up this is for everybody I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment so there's that thinking picture we get, if you remember from last week, he's telling us here's how we're going to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We have a proper understanding of God's grace and mercy, but then here is how we are supposed to think. We are not to think too highly of ourselves. He starts with a negative. Here's what not to do. Don't be too proud. Don't be too arrogant. Now remember, the context is the local church, right? In fact, every command to a Christian in the in the New Testament is in the context of the local church. There are no lone ranger Christians in biblical Christianity. And so Paul knows the temptation in the church, a bunch of different people, a bunch of different backgrounds, a bunch of different ethnicities and socioeconomic places, different giftings, different talents. Paul knows the temptation to try and elevate ourselves above one another and try to jockey for position. So he says, don't be too prideful and arrogant. After all, we're all recipients of God's grace. Right? Now, this might seem common to us, but you have to understand this is very, very countercultural to a church in Rome at this time. In fact, the the Pride was a virtue. And I don't mean like I'm proud of my son, but the, the sinful type of self-exaltation was a virtue. After, after all, think of how many Caesars proclaimed themselves to be deities. So if you wanted to be great, if you want, truly wanted to be a, a recognizable, a meaningful person contributing to society, the way you would do that is exalt yourself and assert yourself. And Paul says, no, 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 that is not the way of Christ. And that's not the way of the church. You are not to think too highly of yourself. The reality is it's countercultural today as well, right? I was paying attention to some ads uh, on TV this week as I was watching the Red Sox get destroyed the last two days, sadly. And and I was just making a mental note on how many of these ads were appealing to my tendency towards self-exaltation right? Something's going to make me look better, smell better, that one's weird, feel better, eat better, right? Look better, drive better, and after all, Kevin, you deserve it, right? That's the message of our culture. Or another common one is you need to look within yourself, and you need to find all of the greatness that is in there, and you need to pull it out. It's already in there. Paul says, no, 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 we are not to think too highly Of ourselves. Not with pride and arrogance. Now, what we would think might come next is here, you don't think too highly. What you need to do is you need to think really lowly about yourself. But you notice that's not what Paul says, is it? You see, there's a temptation that that many of us have to equate self-loathing with humility. You could call it false humility, right? We're self-deprecating, but we're really still always just thinking about ourselves. We're sort of walking around and, and with a woe is me attitude. And, and we equate that with humility and being sort of loud and boisterous with pride. But that's not the case. In fact, that kind of self loathing, sort of treating yourself like a piece of trash, that's not what Paul calls us to. Do you know why? Because that is pride as well. You are still the center of your universe. So he doesn't say, hey, don't think too highly of yourself. You need to think that you're a piece of trash. No, that's not what he says. We're to do neither of those. Instead, he gives this positive. If we're not to think that way about ourselves, then how are we to think? With sober judgment. What is he saying? You need to think of yourself and give an honest assessment of who you are. That word sober, you could read it with a sound Mind A true and right assessment of yourself. So then we have to ask, what does it mean as a Christian to look at ourselves with sober judgment? How should we identify ourselves? Who are we? And I think Martin Luther has a very helpful, short, memorable phrase here that he popularized. In Latin, it is simul justice et peccator. You don't need to remember that. Here's what you need to remember, what this means. The Christian is simultaneously justified in sinner. Right? That's how you need to think of yourself if you are in Christ. First, if you are in Christ, you are justified. You're declared righteous, not by anything you have done, but solely by the righteousness of Christ on your behalf that he has given to you by faith. That means when God looks at you, Christian, he sees a righteous person, the righteousness of Christ. You say amen to that. But then you say, like I do, but I still sin. Right? I still struggle. Well, friend, you are justified in God's sight, absolutely, but you still commit sin. You are still a sinner, Right? If you lean just toward, oh, I'm a terrible sinner and you neglect the fact that you're justified, you will despair of yourself. But if you lean to, towards a misunderstanding of justification and say, oh, of course I'm saved. I'm pretty awesome. Right? You're going to walk in humility. No. We are both simultaneously justified and sinner. And here's what this does for us. This proper identity prepares us to think humbly as we relate to others in the church. Let me show you what that means. When we think with that sober judgment, will there be conflict and challenges as we relate to others? Absolutely. But think of it this way. That sober judgment means that we're secure in our identity, right? So we're ready to receive encouragement without letting it get to our heads, without boasting. Why? Because we know that all of it's by grace, right? We're also ready to receive criticism and engage in inevitable conflict in the church. Why? Because even though that might hurt, we know that we're sinners. We know that we're prone to mess up. Or think of the flip side. We're ready to, to give encouragement and to bless others in the church because we know how necessary it is to be reminded of God's grace, right? Right? We're also ready to to lovingly uh, correct and exhort and speak the truth in love towards others. Because we know all of us are sinners in need of grace. Do you see how important it is to think of ourselves with sober judgment? And Jesus helps us with this here. And he gives a, a parable in Luke 18 that gets at the heart of the matter. Verse 9 says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's pride, by the way, spiritual pride. And they treated others with contempt. And here's the parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, extremely religious person. And the other, a tax collector, an extremely despised person. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see what Jesus is saying? You might have all the religious trappings, you might have all the knowledge, you might have all the the habits of a religious person, but if you do not soberly assess yourself as a justified sinner, then you will not live humbly and you do not understand the gospel. One pastor tells a story of a member in his church who had just come from another church and that church had a really horrifying church split and this man who was a part of that church was a small group leader and he couldn't figure out why his church had imploded. And he went through the list. You know, do they preach God's word? Check. Right. Do, they, do they love the gospel? Yes, absolutely. Do, do they love to worship God? Check. Okay. Do, do, they, do they love one another? Yeah, they, they do love one another. They emphasize small groups and all these things. The, the programs are there, are there. And then the pastor asked him the question, was there a strong emphasis on humility? Humility. He said, absolutely not. And as he recounted what happened in this church, he realized pride had crept in. Friends, it does not matter that we have good, sound doctrine if we're not all so humble. It does not matter, at the end of the day, that we preach the Bible, that we emphasize the Scriptures, if we don't let the truth of those Scriptures transform us into humble, Christ-like people. So as we go about ministry in the church, we're first looking up, then we're looking in. And here's the reality, if all of us, if all of us are living in this way, constantly, humbly assessing ourselves, having one another do that, helping one another do that, then it will be an attractive thing to the world around us. And so you can turn those, those passages into questions for your, your own life. Think of Luke 18. Which one am I in that story? What, where do I lean? Am I, do I lean towards the Pharisee who's not giving an honest self-assessment? Or do I lean towards the tax collector? Lord, help me. Or you can hear the words of Philippians chapter 2. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. How is our self-assessment? Is it too high? Is it too low? Or are we thinking with sober judgment? And then third and finally, after looking up and then looking in, we now look out to serve with humility. This is the very end of verse 3. This phrase, each according to the measure of faith, God has assigned. Okay? Now, I read one commentator say that the phrase measure of faith has 70 different possible interpretations. And no, I didn't read, I maybe read three of them. I'm like, that's it, I can't do it. Right? So this is, all that to say, this is a no- notoriously difficult phrase to say. What exactly is Paul talking about here? Some would say, well, Paul is talking about the gospel. Assess yourself according to your faith in the gospel, which is by grace. Now, that is a true and good thing to do. Right. That's what we did when we were talking about the grace given to Paul and the grace given to us. But the context here as we read on and as we'll see next week in the coming weeks, the context here is spiritual gifts. And actually Paul is talking about a diversity of gifts given to others so that they may serve the body. So I think what F.F. Bruce, a commentator, says is true. He talks about the measure of faith being the spiritual power given to each Christian for the discharge of his or her special responsibility. Okay? So he's talking about spiritual gifts. This is an incredible thing. We, he talks about this as, as well in Ephesians 4. By the grace, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Or another passage that helps us understand. 1 Corinthians 12, 4. Now there are a variety of gifts but the same spirit. And there are a varieties of service. But the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. Verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So I think what Paul's talking about here, he's setting up what he's about to say. And he's saying, you've been given spiritual gifts, and you are to think of yourself with sober judgment, and in light of the gifts God has given you, not that person. What has God given you that you may serve the body faithfully by faith? So what, what are some of these gifts? Now, the topic of spiritual gifts is big, but I think it's helpful to know, and we'll get into it more in the coming weeks. It's helpful to know that there are really three primary places we see uh, lists of gifts in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians chapter 4, and then here in a few verses in Romans chapter 12. But here's the kicker. None of these are exhaustive right? So you say, how many spiritual gifts are there? We don't really know. But what we do know is that God has given gifts to his church, and we're, they're not talents, like, oh, I can play guitar, right? They're not just God, uh, talents that you've been given at birth, but they are gifts that are given by the Holy Spirit to the church for the good of the body. Some of them listed below in Romans 12 are Or prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, generosity, leadership, mercy. Right. So, to sum all of that up, what Paul is saying is this: We're to humbly serve one another with the gifts God has given us. Okay. The temptation is to put a hierarchy of spiritual gifts in the church. Right. We tend to elevate what's more upfront. That person's more important because they preach or teach, or that person's not as important because they stack chairs and serve in that way, right? But what Paul is saying is, no, all of us are necessary for the body of Christ. All of us. We're not to compare or grow jealous, but we're to humbly serve as recipients of God's grace. He'll use next week, I won't jump into it now, but he uses the body illustration, A body is a diversity of parts, the same being united in one purpose. When we came in here this morning to sing, you saw four people using four different instruments, to use another illustration. Percussion, keys, guitar, two voices. Do they sound great on their own? Sure, absolutely. But what happens when they come together? They make music. That is the church and God has given us gifts to serve others. First Peter four ten says, "As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace." And friends, this should inform the way we view the church, the gathering, what happens on a Sunday morning, our our gospel communities, the life of the church. We're not primarily saying, "What can I get from this?" That's how the world tells us to think. How can I get the most for me out of this? No, we are are to come thinking, how can I give? How can I serve with the gifts that God has assigned? And here's the beautiful thing about that. As the Lord Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. When we serve the church with the gifts that God has given us, when we serve humbly, we actually find that we are receiving nourishment for our faith and joy in our souls. So how has God gifted you to serve one another? Ignore the temptation to say, "Ah, I can't really do anything important for the church." No, you are a part of the body. Doug Nichols was a missionary, is a missionary, and he worked for an organization called uh, Operation Mobilization. And in 1966, they had their global conference. This was a huge conference. Um, And he tells this story to illustrate humility in serving others. And he was in charge of facilities. And one night he was was cleaning up uh, as the conference was getting ready to start the next day. And it was midnight, which is really late, by the way. I read the story. I'm like, man, that's late. And he's cleaning up. And he's locking up. And a man comes to the steps of this conference hall. And an older gentleman, and he looked tired. He said, is this where the conference is? He said, yes. He said, oh, I'm. I'm here for the conference, is there, a, is there a place for me to stay? And Doug's like, oh man, it's midnight, um, not really, man, there's a, there's a room in there, and there's about 50 people sleeping on the floor, if you want to sleep there, which clearly things were different in the 60s, that would never happen now, right? And so he says, that, that'll be fine, so he goes, and he's showing him the area, and he's like, do you have any, he's like, I don't have anything to sleep on. Okay, so he finds some blankets and makes like a makeshift, you know, bed in the corner, and he asks the, the guy, do you have are you hungry? Have you eaten anything?" He says "I've been traveling all day to get here." He says, "I think I can find something and he finds some cornflakes you know and puts them in a bowl and, and feeds the guy and, and gives him a towel for a pillow and he goes to sleep and the next morning, Doug goes back to his room and the next morning Doug wakes up uh, to his boss telling him essentially he's in a lot of trouble He's like, "What did I do You made the keynote speaker of our conference, Francis Schaeffer, sleep on the floor with 50 other people in the middle of the night. And Doug was shocked. Now you might not know who Francis Schaeffer is, but at the time he would be the closest thing to a Christian celebrity that you can imagine. He founded a a training center, He had a a huge heart to reach uh, those who were sort of on the, the fringes of culture. A brilliant apologist and author. Time magazine did write-ups on him. He would be like, if Billy Graham were a hippie, that would be Francis Schaefer. And he made, he knew Francis' name, he knew he was coming, but he was shocked and mortified that he made Francis Schaefer sleep on the floor. But think of the humility of this man. Doug tells this story because Schaeffer was a stalwart intellectual. His gifts were blessing the church at large. He could have easily commanded, where is my room? Do you know who I am? But he didn't. He said a floor is fine. Some cornflakes are fine. A towel for a pillow is fine. And that story, more than all of Schaefer's books, that story stuck with Doug through all these years. He tells it constantly. And he says every time he tells that story, he makes this application. You may not have the intellect or popularity, you may not be a Francis Schaeffer, but you can serve others with Christ-like humility in a way that ministers to him. And friends, that's what we're called to. And it should not surprise us because this is what Christ has done for us. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. I'll close by reading a passage from Philippians chapter 2, maybe one of the most popular humility passages in the New Testament. Read from, from part of it earlier. But listen to what Paul says. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, Friends, humble Christians constantly look to our humble Savior. And so let's walk the path of humility together. Understanding God's grace, assessing ourselves rightly in such a way that leads us to serve others with our God-given gifts. Let's pray together.